I can speak from my own experience. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be the center of attention. I wanted the glory. I wanted the fame. I wanted the pretty girls come up and say, hi, I see that you're good at centipede. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and I just want to start by saying Happy New Year. I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas. Hopefully you're listening to this in January so it is New Year and you all had a fantastic time with your family, your friends, your loved ones and you got to watch loads of cool films, you got to listen to loads of cool podcasts, eat loads of junk food and just have a great, great time. I'm really, really looking forward to this year ahead. I've got some really big plans. I don't just want to go out and interview the big, big names. I've got some really interesting people that are making their name in the industry right now. The big film directors are great. They've got some great stories to tell. But I want to talk to the people that are on the verge of making it. Those people that are working really hard to get themselves out there, get themselves seen, get themselves heard. Those people are fascinating to talk to and I'm going to get a good mix this year. I don't just want to do movies, I want to talk to people involved in the music industry, in sport. If someone has some good stories to tell, I'm going to be there with my microphone and ready to talk because I want to give you guys as much as I can. I'm going to try and top last year, which isn't going to be easy, but I'm going to do my very best. Now, looking back at last year, I was putting a collage together the other day for Facebook and Twitter as kind of a reflection on 2017, and it really hit home just how busy it was. I didn't realise, and you've probably noticed there hasn't been an episode for a few weeks. I got quite ill. I had a throat infection. I had a chest infection. I had tonsillitis, and it probably is a little bit of myself burning myself out, but I'm better. I rested, and I'm here now to give you some more episodes, but... Just looking back, we started the year with Carol Spinney talking all about what it's like to be Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, which was just crazy. We had the trauma man himself, Lloyd Kaufman, which was amazing. (laughs) This one still doesn't seem real, even when I say it out loud. Anthony Hopkins. This guy does not do podcasts. You won't hear him anywhere else, and we got a world exclusive. We had Brian O'Halloran and Jason Mewes, who were incredible on set of Madness in the Method, and I'm so, so excited about that. My favourite film of all time, Jaws, the screenwriter himself, Carl Gottlieb, which was just incredible. We had Sherilyn Fenn. We got to talk all about Twin Peaks before it was even out. You know, that third series blew me away, but we were there before it was even out, kind of anticipating what to expect. Oh man, Turbo Kid, one of my favourite independent films. It's not a huge, huge film, but we got to speak to Lawrence and all the directors of that. Dominic Burns, man, this guy was so fascinating, such a great guy, and he's one to watch, I'm telling you now. Mark Bernardin, we talked all about Fat Man on Batman, we got to talk about comics, a great, great guy. 
And then it went very heavily into the room. I got Greg Sestero, who everyone knows now because of The Disaster Artist, which is a hell of a good film. Go and check it out. Tommy Wise, who came back. We had a really good in-depth chat. But not only that, The Room Actors, where are they now? That three-part special when we got to talk all about The Room, what it was like being on set. And then seeing The Disaster Artist was quite surreal because I'd spoken to the whole cast, so I'd already heard their stories before seeing it on the big screen. Then something major, major happened. Neil Blomkamp came along, and that was my favourite episode of the year. That guy blew me away. His stories, his hunger, his desire, what he's doing with the Oats Project is just mind-blowing. And he's going to come back this year for more, so I'm really, really excited. We then had Alicia Witt, a great, great actress who was telling us all about times of The Walking Dead, times on Twin Peaks, and June. Just fascinating. Michael Winslow, the man with so many crazy voices and impressions, an absolute treat when I was such a big fan of Police Academy growing up. And then Zach Galligan, the man who is from Gremlins, you know, Billy from Gremlins, one of my icons when I was growing up and such a great guy to talk to. So it's quite a random year, it's quite a random selection of guests, but I hope you all enjoyed them as much as me. Now let's move on to today's episode. So as I mentioned at the start, we've got the founder of Twin Galaxies, Walter Day. The reason I wanted to speak to this guy was I'd watched a documentary. I've talked about it quite a lot actually on um, the Skip to the End podcast. It's called King of Kong and it's a really great story about uh, a real simple concept really. It's the hero versus the villain and who can achieve the best score on Kong. You know, quite a simple concept but this story has so many twists. I'm not going to ruin it because hopefully some of you won't have heard of it and you'll go and check it out after listening to today's episode. But it's a great, great documentary and I urge you to go and see it. Also, the documentaries out there like Nintendo Quest, Man vs. Snake and Chasing Ghosts all feature heavily with the man himself, Walter Day. And he really is a very interesting character. We talk a lot about the gaming industry. This is really a fascinating interview and very different to the stuff I've done before. So hey, let's not carry on me talking, let's hear from Walter. So I hope you enjoy this. This is my interview with Walter Day. If anybody wants to see, there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up. There's a Donkey Kong kill screen might be coming up if anybody wants to see it. There's a potential Donkey Kong kill screen if you want to watch. If you're interested, uh, there might be a Donkey Kong kill screen in a couple minutes. So Walter, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. I do really appreciate your time. When you were growing up, what was your very first memory of video games? How did it all become such a part of your life? Well, the first time I ever saw a video game was in 1972 on a college campus, and it was Pong. And I remember playing it once. And I remember not liking it, finding it uh, kind of uncomfortable and also too challenging. I didn't find myself having any skill set that would allow me to play Pong to any level of success. And then the next time I saw a video game was a fan in a roller skating rink. And I looked over people's shoulders, and I was fascinated by what they were doing, but I didn't play it. Essentially, I discovered video games when I was working in Houston as an oil broker, and uh, I didn't start playing games as a kid. I was already 31 years old. (laughs) Essentially, uh, uh, a book I was working on with someone, the other person said, I can't do this editing anymore. I have to play Space Invaders. (laughs) I said, what the heck is that? So uh, essentially, he took me to an arcade. This was in Houston, 1980, and I fell in love with video games that night and became a hardcore Space Invaders player, which led to being a Pac-Man player, which led to be a Centipede player, and which led to lots of other games that are all from the dawn of video game playing. 
So that's how it started for me, and I just love video games so much that I opened up an arcade called Twin Galaxies as an excuse to be able to play more video games. So you just mentioned then that you used to actually be an oil broker, which is a complete different change in lifestyle, and obviously the the people you must meet in that kind of career compared to what you do in gaming. It's such a different encounter of people. That's so strange to go from what such a different kind of profession. Oh, I completely agree. It was completely outrageous because... Uh... Uh, I was dealing with a hardcore industry. I was essentially uh, dealing with uh, businessmen who were almost unsmiling. They were self-focused on uh, making money and uh, getting ahead uh, financially and having power and having success and having lots of money and lots of possessions. And I went into something that was completely based on a yeah, all about the money. I was doing deals. I was do. I was putting together deals in the oil spot market between groups like Conoco and Tenneco, stuff like that, and then also famous oil traders like Tesoro and Tosco and United Fuels and Apex Oil. So we were doing that, and it wasn't fun. And uh, I discovered video games, and so I just started playing them like crazy, and eventually opened up Twin Galaxies. And after being open for only three months, I discovered that no one was keeping track of the scores for video games. So I volunteered to be the scorekeeper, and everybody went along with it. So suddenly Twin Galaxies was the scorekeeper for the world. So how long was it after um, building this arcade that you could, you know, stop working in the other profession and, you know, stop being an oil broker and do this job full-time? Well, I quit being an oil broker before I, uh, long before I opened up the arcade. And I switched at that time to trying to buy and sell high school yearbooks that pictured famous people. So I became a detective. Now, let me explain that. In America, America has a long tradition of school classes issuing at the end of their year a class album, photo album. You know what a class, you know what a high school yearbook is, of course, Mark, don't you? Yeah, just like a whole collection of each person's profile picture. Yeah, it would be it would be like it would be like the story of the of the year. It'd be individual everybody's individual picture with a little blur beneath them. It was a high school yearbook that simply uh, commemorated the school, the year, the history, the sports, the individuals. And so I would go out and find those that had had people who would go on to become famous, and I'd buy the yearbooks for very little money, like maybe twenty five dollars, fifty dollars, then sell them for many hundreds of dollars as best as I could. So I tried to make that a business, and it worked a little bit, and I actually made sales here and there, uh, you know, focusing on sports figures, just focusing on movie stars or American presidents, like I had President Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, and um, then I had actor John Wayne, and I had Johnny Carson, the TV show host, and stuff like that, and Rock Hudson, and Charlton Heston, and baseball player Mickey Mantle, and, and so, so I would buy the yearbooks and then resell them. So I tried to do that for a few years, and I'd go on the road and put those on display and go to newspapers, and they do big stories. I mean, there's still lots of things you can look up on the Internet. Well, Walter Day came to town and showed his high school yearbooks and his old newspapers because I had a business selling old newspapers, too. So basically, the recurring theme that even you'll find in the video game world is that I was a historian who loved uh, monitoring history, commemorating history, recording history, and then just bringing it to life. So I bring it to life with my newspaper displays. I bring it to life with my trading cards that I do nowadays. I commemorate 
important moments and in individuals and arcades and incidences and stuff like that. Uh, using uh, trading cards as the vehicle for capturing uh, uh, those historical, you know, events. Well, I went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of newspapers. In fact, the news used to say that I owned seven million newspapers, old newspapers dating back as far as 1590, but that wasn't accurate. I didn't really own seven million. I had seven million available to sell because I could buy them from a whole bunch of about a dozen other dealers who had big collections of old newspapers dating back to 1590 or even earlier. And the reason those collections existed is because when they invented microfiche and microfilm, uh, the libraries around the world, especially in America, would microfilm all their newspapers that up to that moment had been stored inside big bound books in their libraries on the shelves. And uh, essentially they would have them all get scanned, turned into microfilm, and then threw the volumes out. So I retrieved tens of thousands of old newspapers in these big bound volumes. I, what I estimated was like 7 million old newspapers that I could find and sell to a person for uh, under the theme, what happened the day you were born. So the person was born on uh, August 11, 1971. I'd, I'd sell them a newspaper probably from the New York Times, the Boston Herald or something for that day. But it was easier to do farther back because I'd have all the newspapers for like the New York Times back to the 1850s just about. So I did that, and I used to be traveling around, getting on newspaper interviews, getting in newspaper interviews, getting on TV shows and radio interviews, or showing them newspapers and yearbooks. And But as I did that, though, I would stop at every arcade I could stop at and play the games and also start logging the scores that I found on video games. I was very, very, very intrigued by the high scores that I found on video games because I considered the high-score champions of the video game world to be athletes who were excelling in their field, and they were fascinating to me. So I already had this psychological orientation towards being the scorekeeper for video games long before I opened up Twin Galaxies, because there came a point when finally I was playing Pac-Man, and I was intrigued by getting high scores on Pac-Man and how high, how high of a score could someone get. And so I actually while I was going out and doing um, my different trips for the newspapers and yearbooks, I actually started di digressing into side trips to try and find great, great video game players who could get high scores, mainly focusing on trying to find the greatest Pac-Man player. So I don't know of anybody else who ever did. I think that kind of theme has been in movies before, but I actually did that way before that was ever thought of as a concept for a movie. I actually went on an odyssey to find the greatest Pac-Man player, and, uh, and I finally found, uh, followed some clues which led me to Sandy, that's the name of the town, Sandy, Utah, when I got there. And the people realized it was an out-of-towner come to learn the secrets of Pac-Man. They clammed right down and wouldn't tell me anything. They were real smug and dismissive of me. So I didn't learn anything, but I had the unique experience of going on a spiritual odyssey to find the greatest Pac-Man player. That's kind of a funny story, because I don't know if anybody else has ever done that. At least way not, way, not way back then, huh? No, definitely, and it's uh, it's great that you had the kind of ability to go out there and be determined to keep going and keep finding out more and more. It must have been fascinating. Well, it was a long process. It was a very interesting experience. 
So you just mentioned then the Twin Galaxies arcade. Uh, it was 1981, wasn't it, when you opened up the actual arcade? And was yep, this November 10th? I opened Twin Galaxies Arcade with Jonathan David Block, my partner. He had also been my oil brokerage partner in the same office way back in Houston. And we both went up to Fairfield, Iowa, and we were going to open up a, an arcade any place we could, but the only place that was available was in the nearby town of Ottumwa, Iowa, 24 miles away. So we opened one there mainly because the company that provided the games, they were an operator, as they called them. The operator had, was operating games, I think, in 24 other arcades. I think we're like the 25th or 26th arcade that they filled the games in. And what it is, they put the games in on a 50-50 split, and we got half, and they got half whenever we emptied the coffers, which would be once a week, and that's how we make our income. So they put 22 games in our arcade for opening night, November 10th, 1981. The arcade was a hit from the very beginning. And um, and we had 22 games to start with, and they were Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Centipede, Tempest and Frogger, Gorf Galaxian, Drag Race, Sprint 2, uh, Turtles, Super Cobra, Space Fury, uh, Asteroids, Battlezone, Defender, Kicks, Lunar Lander. So we were a small arcade, but we were only open for three months before the t Time Magazine story for January 18th, 1982, hit the newsstand. Suddenly people stood up in front of me and said, look, look at this article, it's a cover story in Time Magazine. They talk about how video games are taking over the world. And, uh, and there's a part of the article, it's like a seven-page article, where they have a feature box on a kid named Steve Jurassic, and Steve played Defender on one quarter up to 15 million points. I think it might have taken him 14 hours for 15 million points, something like that. And uh, the kid in front of me who showed me this article said, I can beat that score. And I says, oh yeah, prove it. So that weekend, he beat that score. So it's pretty amazing. And But as he's playing the game, we announced it to the local radio station, local TV station. And they rush right over and make a really big deal out of it. And then before the night's over, we start getting phone calls from faraway cities like St. Louis and the Quad Cities, which is on the border of Illinois and Iowa, and Des Moines, Iowa, maybe Minneapolis, just places that were very far away that considered this a newsworthy story for their region, for the, for the whole region. So uh, well, that's how, in the very beginning, <clears throat> Twin Galaxies had a an amazing birth and was hit the ground running and, and, and oh, by the way by the end of the weekend when I called Williams Electronics to see if it was the world record the people there said we don't know people call all the time but no one keeps track of the scores and so I called another manufacturer they said no we don't keep track of the scores either uh, in about a half an hour or so I called up two magazines replay and play meter and, and I called seven manufacturers, and everybody said, no one knows what the world records are. We get called all the time, every day, but there's no record. No one keeps track of the scores. So I thought about that overnight, and the next day, I called back those nine phone calls, the two magazines and seven manufacturers, because we had our, our scoreboard, our Twin Galaxy scoreboard. I announced that we had a scoreboard, and, we were, and I said to them, we're keeping track of the scores for you. 
and we just wanted you folks to know. And through a miracle of divine faith, all nine people on the other side of the phone said, this is great. Thank you for the service. We will keep your phone number and name right here at our front desk Rolodex so that when anybody calls, we will be able to refer them to you. And then a couple of them said, and by the way, who are you? And off the top of the head, my head, I said, I'm the, we're the Twin Galaxies National Scoreboard. And from there, the rest is history. It just happened smooth as silk as that. It's unbelievable when you think about how many ways this could have not happened. But all the things line, all the stars in the sky lined up to support this and make this happen and bring this to where it is now 36 years later. I mean, no one would ever anticipate that it would launch and become so much more than just an arcade, but I was blown away that 1983 you actually had the televised international video game world championships how did that come about after i did those nine phone calls which took maybe about a half an hour to do i hung up the phone and i went back into the arcade area to play gore <laughs> 30 minutes later one of the attendants who helped me work there tapped on my shoulder and says there's someone on the phone here they're calling from tennessee uh, about a, about a score on gore and i go whoa and i go to the phone and sure enough, sure enough, there's a man named Casey Murphy. And Casey Murphy is calling from Goodlettsville, Tennessee, which is near Nashville, to report a high score of 555,000 approximately on, on, on Gallagher. And so I look up at our scoreboard to see what's up there. And it's our night manager has like just slightly more than him. So I, say, so I tell him in very serious, somber tones, I say, Casey you have the world's second highest score. So he gets all of a sudden and says, oh my God, I'm going to go back and play and I'll call you back later. And he called back the next day with a higher score. Now at this time, it's very lax and loose and easy and trusting because I think if someone calls up and tells me something, I believe that they're telling the truth. This is long before really bugs and cheats and, and incredible, uh, all those kind of things that would inspire someone to not tell the truth were not in place yet because none of the scores were published in magazines and there was no big you know, drive to try and prove yourself and become famous through a video game score. So this is right at the very beginning when it's very innocent, and I'm very innocent. And if someone tells me something over the phone, for the longest time I'm still believing that they must be telling the truth, because who would lie about a video game score? Yeah, good point. So suddenly we're the scorekeeper, and more and more of the manufacturers are referring people to us every single day. And then as a month or two goes on, we're now getting uh, maybe 20 calls a day. And we, then we start getting letters in the mail where people start sending in these, these, these signed affidavits that I created where they have witnesses sign and a photograph of the score on the game, which, of course, was so easy to cheat and everything like that. And so we're beginning to get mail. We're beginning to get phone calls. And, and then on April 4th, 1982, well, I organized our first national championship. I organized a Defender Championship, which people in 23 different arcades, one representing one per, one per city, 23 different cities, had their champion compete on, on Defender in their local arcade. Of course, they're still on the honor system where I trusted them sending in true information. But someone in Mission Viejo, California, what was his name? His last name Smith. He won the championship with 33 million points on Defender. So right from the get up and go, we were not just an arcade anymore. We were now taking on national responsibilities to find national champions and international champions. So it was a very, very amazing, 
experience of Seagrove. As this is going on, I, I noticed that California and, and in North Carolina have an, an inordinate amount of world champions. So I organized a competition, a team competition, between all the champions of California gathered together as a team at one location, and all the champions of North Carolina gathered at one location as a team, and have them go head-to-head on 17 different games. And whoever has the most uh, world records, California would win, having the world record on 10 games to North Carolina's 7 games. But by then, we're now having magazines like Joystick and Video Games Magazine and other magazines and other media people because now the video game industry is referring everybody to us because we are the official people for dealing with the issues about gameplay and gamers and competition and contests and the world of actually being a gamer as opposed to being a manufacturer or distributor or someone else in the video game industry. So we are now representing the world of video game players. And that's why we, we're getting all sorts of media and all sorts of magazines and all sorts of people contacting us and suddenly Life Magazine contacts us and they say the January 1983 is going to be a year in review issue that's going to cover all of the highlights of 1982 and video games are almost the biggest thing and we want to do a special two page spread on video games but we don't know what we're going to do but we were told we should call you because you represent the world of the, of the gamers the competition of competitive video games in other words we were the beginning of esports we were the esports organization at the very beginning when this all started. Life Magazine said, we don't know what we're going to do yet. I said, well, why don't you come here, and I'll, I'll have all the champions of our time here at ERA come to be involved in a group photo with you. And so they said, at first, mm, we're not sure, but then they agreed to it. And they came, and uh, that's the famous photograph of all the people posing in the street, the Life Magazine thing. We invited like about 22 people, and I think it was 18 showed up, but they partied the night before, and two of them, when the photograph was being taken, were lying drunk on someone's kitchen floor. So they never made it to the photograph. So the photograph went to press with only 16 champions in that photograph. So that was it, the Life Magazine. And then Life Magazine, we're getting more and more people and more and more situations referred to us. And then that's incredible called ABC TV's national, that's incredible. And they want to do a video game thing too. And they, and, and, and they don't know exactly how they want to do it, but I proposed to them the contest that we organized in the Tumblr said that we'll all get together the top players. They'll come here and we'll generate champions. And then they were going to take the champions to their Hollywood studios to have a final grand finale showdown between the three champions. So they came and they filmed a ton of stuff there in Twin Galaxies in Ottumwa to determine a world champion. It was called the uh, That's Incredible Twin Galaxies Video Game Olympics. There were a lot of different names. But when they showed it on the air, I think they just called it the Twin Galaxies. Another That's Incredible. And at that point in time, they learned they couldn't use the word Olympics. So the big, big banner across Main Street that said, Welcome to the video game Olympics. Said it was said, Welcome to the video game, and there was just a white space where their technicians in the editing room had to white out the word Olympics. <laughs> That's crazy. So we had that championship there, and that was a very remarkable thing because it was the uh, it was a benchmark milestone, which might be redundant for that era 
I personally think the fame of it, that's an incredible thing. The fame of the Life Magazine thing. And then the next thing that happened that was real big is the governor of Iowa and Atari and the Amusement Game Manufacturers Association out of Washington, D.C. all descended on Twin Galaxies on March 9, 1983 to declare the video game capital of the world. And that was quite a big thing, too. So we had this string of remarkable events that no other arcade in the world, maybe no other arcade ever had such uh, historic stuff happen in them. And this is all happening back at a time when it's all in this instancy. Everything is seminal and original and fresh and new. And it's the, the sterling marks of the golden age. So I guess that's why people love the story so much about the birth of Twin Galaxies and the birth of esports and stuff like that because uh, these are the first professional gamers. These are the first serious gamers who always wanted to have what now is happening to all these young gamers, the opportunity to be professional and play in high-level stakes with, you know, incredible games, incredible competitions. All that stuff was desired by them. But everything was sort of a, a cartoon version of it way back in the early 80s because the technology didn't exist and the societal uh, biases were up and running against it happening back then so that parents wouldn't, parents wouldn't encourage kids to be gamers. Uh, their girlfriends wouldn't encourage them to be gamers. Nothing was there to really support anybody to be a gamer. Especially not the money based or the technology based. So, but they all had in their hearts the desire to be professional gamers. It's just that they were born too soon. The interesting phenomenon about, for instance, the spectator sport, the spectator sport that has popped up nowadays with huge stadiums. You can fill a stadium full of people to watch video game play. And across the air ways, you can have pay per view or streaming or whatever and have a lot of people be involved in uh, giving you a high spectatorship base. Uh, that is not a new thing. Back in the old days in the arcade, if someone was at a game and they were getting a high score, a crowd of people would gather around them because people, even back then at the very beginning, uh, they've always, always been intrigued by the best of the best putting on a show, showing their firepower and dominating the game and beating us to its knees and getting the highest score. So there's always been the best of the best attracting crowds and having people gather around them to become a big spectator sport. It's just that the technology wasn't there uh, uh, to make it to make it the huge, huge, rich, astounding thing it is today. If if Billy if it had a, if the technology had been available back in 1982 and it was announced that Billy Mitchell was going to play the world record on Donkey Kong, every single arcade would have signed up to be part of that streaming event. Nothing's new under the sun. It's all cycled through again and again and again. And uh, Billy Mitchell uh, and his uh, Donkey Kong or his Pac-Man thing or any of these other champs and all those hundreds of champs from years ago, they would have uh, had a huge audience watching them play if the technology had been available way back then to let them have their game be viewed by the public around the world. There's nothing's new, and the spectatorship phenomenon is as old as mankind, as old as the arena in Rome being filled up to watch the gladiators fight. How was it for you watching back the King of Kong documentary? Did you love it, or were you quite concerned about the way they portrayed the people, or did you just enjoy seeing yourself? Oh, I was completely concerned the way the movie was designed. Yeah. Uh, because first of all, it just, didn't, it just didn't have any of the facts correct. And it was strategically designed 
uh, the term Billy, and I guess other people, into villains, and Steve Wiebe into a hero. Now, Billy and Steve are both wonderful people, and uh, I think there were a lot of dynamics that were going on that could have made a great story. But, of course, there's nothing like the drama of a hero versus a villain. So uh, an example of how it was purposely tweaked to encourage Billy's role as the villain is there's a scene towards the end of the movie where Billy finally comes into the arcade and we see Steve and Billy for the first time together in the same space. And Billy walks into the arcade. I don't know if you personally remember that scene or not. Yeah, I I do uh, remember it because I remember the way they showed it was if he didn't say anything and just got his wife and said, come on, ignore him or something like that. So what happened is uh, he paused behind Steve and Steve sort of half turned and said, hey, Billy. And Billy looked over his shoulder for a moment and then walked away and said, there's some people that I don't want to spend too much time with. And they walked off. And I've been in many, many big crowded theaters that watched that scene and they just go berserk because this is the final straw uh, that proves that Billy is an absolute heel and that Steve is an innocent victim, you know, like that. But what actually happened is Billy did stop and talk to him. They exchanged friendly words, and then Billy and his wife moved on. And as they move on, Billy's explaining to his wife that all the cameras are on him, and people are going to say, oh, Billy's trying to steal Steve's secrets, or Billy's trying to unnerve Steve so he'll lose his man and not have a chance to beat him. All sorts of stuff. So Billy said there's some people who don't want to spend too much time with because he doesn't want to cause anything that will come back and bite him, you know? So, uh, so, but he stops and they have a friendly interchange, but it is purposely cut out of the movie because they use that as a device to further incriminate Billy as being a villain and Steve being a, a victim. And, uh, so that's that's an example of how the movie got skewered in a direction to make Billy the villain and Steve the hero. So I had a problem with that because it just wasn't unfair uh, and it just caused a lot of stress and psychological stuff. However, on the level of art, the movie is extraordinary, and I recognize that. There were some uh, movie critics who recently did a, 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 a retrospect the 3,000 movies of the last 10 years that came out, they viewed and went over 3,000 different movies so they could choose their list of the 30 greatest movies of the last 10 years. And out of those 3,000 movies, they selected The King of Kong as number 29 out of the 3,000. So The King of Kong has, a, has now gained a remarkable place in the cultural history of our times. Even though it does not reflect what happened exactly, or even generally, and it uh, and it purposefully uh, you know violates truth to make sure that Billy's the heel and Steve's the hero. I think they're both great guys, and I respect them both. But I thought that was unfair. So that's all I can really say about the King of Kong. So recently, I was on Netflix, and I hadn't heard about it until it just popped up and recommended I watched it. it was Man vs. Snake, and I was I was so surprised to see all of the main guys again in it, and yourself and Billy. What a great documentary that is! Man vs. Snake is a lot of fun. That took almost I think it took like eight. I, I've lost track. It was either seven and a half or eight and a half or nine years that it took to make. It just went on and on and on and on. And every time it went on and on and on, there were different dramatic things that would surface that would cause the story to change a little bit or take a different direction. So it was a, it was a dramatic thing. So um, 
quite exciting, quite interesting. And it is, isn't it interesting? So have you seen Chasing Ghosts too? I haven't. That's the next one I've got. Literally someone recommended it to me, so I'm going to watch it this weekend. See if you can find the one that's the original, the original screener that yeah. has the original soundtrack and uh, some other original things like Roy Schultz in it and Robert Rucksack. This one you want to watch. So, so between Chasing Ghosts, The King of Kong, and Man vs. Snake, it's quite a miraculous uh, serving up of the history of Twin Galaxies and Billy Mitchell and Walter Day and all these other characters, because we're we're in three we're in three uh, documentaries that are extremely prominent, you know. With the number one being, you know, go like the King of Kong. So anyway, obviously, before I spoke to you, I did some research and I didn't realize that in the Disney film Wreck It Ralph, there's a character that actually features a nod to you in the end credits. Have you seen this in the reaction of Disney's homage to you? I'm widely known as having been Mr. Litwack. Yeah. Numerous times, Disney insiders, who actually were part of the insight process, told me that it's true, that I was intended to be Mr. Litwack, or Mr. Litwack was intended to be me. If you deal with, like, the legal department or a corporate structure, uh, they have their escape envelope where they say, oh, no, no, we fashioned it after some guy who's over in the art department, so it's not you. So that's that's a safety device, uh, safety net to keep them from getting sued because i've had so many people say why aren't you suing them for using your image but i consider it a gift and it was a very very fun reward to have a disney character fashioned after me but even on some of the disney sites it'll say walter day is mr Litwack." that is so, cool that's a yep, that's a great claim to fame yeah not many people have a disney character named after them no it's it would be one of my dreams so you you, you are definitely uh one up on me there I've also seen that you've got, is this correct, you've got a reality TV show in the makings, is that right, or? Oh yeah, well Sean Paul Jones, who you should probably interview, he is making Chasing Games, and the first thing we're doing, it's a re- like a reality hunting down video games kind of show, but we're focusing on the six games that were in the Life magazine photograph. So how's this reality TV show, what's that going to be like then, are they following you around with cameras, or you? how's that all working? Uh, yeah, they're going to follow us around cameras. We go and find games. We're find, as I said, we're finding the six games that were in the uh, Life magazine photograph. Those are the first ones we're finding. But we're trying to find special versions of those. For instance, the Defender machine that we got already rounded up. He wouldn't sell it to us, but he's going to loan us for our museum effort. And what it is, it's the Defender machine up in Minneapolis that was originally owned and carried around on tour from concert concert to concert by the rock band Journey. So Journey's own Defender Machine is the one that we've rounded up uh, uh, that's in the trailer that you might have seen uh, for Chasing Games. And at the same time that we found Defender, right there beside it in the same room, was the actual Journey, the 1983 video game called Journey, the Journey Machine that was owned by Journey, autographed by some of the members of Journey. And they carried that around uh, on their concert tours too, so those have been made. Uh, those are being made available. So, fun stuff. Yeah, very. And so we're going to try and find uh, other special, special versions of each one of these six games. So, because anybody, I, I think that most people can round up a Tempest if they want one or two Tonkin, but to try and find the special one, like a one that a world record was done on, or we're going to try and find the Donkey Kong that the world record was done on years ago, stuff like that. Is there a rough idea of when we? going to get this or is it still in the making or is it early stages oh it's not no it's still in the early stages still in the making awesome so have you had much involvement or have you heard about the book and the film that's coming out ready player one? Oh, 
Well, let's see. Hold on a second. Let me let me let me grab my copy of Ready Player One. Okay, here's my copy. Apparently, it's a rare hard copy. Very, it's very very limited edition. I only found this out online just a few days ago. So, when I was in Austin at a show, uh, me and Billy were the stars of the show, along with one guy other, and that was Ernie Klein. Me, Billy, and Ernie Klein were the three stars of the show. So he presented me with a copy, a hardbound copy of his Ready Player One. And here's what he inscribes on the inside cover. He says, to Walter Day, thank you for inspiring the story and for creating the culture celebrated in it. Your fan, Ernest Klein. I'm so jealous right now. That is the coolest thing I've heard. When he got up on the stage with us, he said to the crowd, there would have never been any Ready Player One if it hadn't have been for Billy and Walter. So have you had a chance to read uh, the book yourself? or? Oh yeah, I read it on the airplane uh, while going to Helsinki to get up on the stage. Wow. And Steven Spielberg's doing the film, so you must be excited to see the finished yeah, product. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You hold quite a lot of world records in your own book, and you've had some very prestigious titles. I had one world record, but I had about four or five good scores in different games. But only one game that I ever had the world record on, and that was Make Tracks. I had 1,580,000, I think it was, and that was a world record for maybe a year, maybe about a year. Yeah. And, but that world record fell a long time ago. I've never really uh, attempted to break, take the world record back all these years. Was there any uh, other records anyway. out there that you tried to acquire but failed, or was it just a couple that you wanted to really put your heart and soul into? See, most of the games that I have a high score on, I could never have gotten the, high, the world record, because the world record would have been just too high, too much effort. I was probably the best 32-year-old gamer in the world, because at that time, all the top players in the world were giving me lessons. So I could go into an arcade and get scores way beyond anybody else in any arcade, any place. But those scores would only be a pittance compared to the actual scores that the world champions would get. For instance, I could get, I think I got like 313,000 on Ms. Pac-Man, way back when most people were getting about 210,000. But the champions were getting six, seven, and 800,000 points a small group of champions who would train me. So I was better than anybody else, but the champions were way up there in the stratosphere beyond me. I've spoke to you now a few times, and it's amazing how much you get to travel and see the world and go to conventions and meet all these people. Does it still blow your mind that how crazy people go for you and Billy and the, the hunger and desire that the fans come with and kind of you're seen as a, an absolute legend and a, a hero to them? Well, first of all, there's a few things. I don't personally have, like, a celebrity attitude. I marvel at it. What I appreciate out of the attention that gets put on me is when people express kindness and love and, and, and just goodness towards me. That is the thing that's great. Uh, anybody who's in awe or, or, or subservient or a minion or worship or fan or stuff like that, that's completely over my head. That, I can't even relate to that. No. Because all the people I meet, I'm meeting them hopefully as friends and fellow lovers of video games. And uh, the thing about stardom and fandom and being a center of attention, I like the part of it where people give me love and affection and respect. But there's no way, there's no way that any of this, any of this could be translated into me being superior or better than anybody else. Now, I don't know if this answer makes sense to you or not, but it certainly, certainly is a weird whirlwind that 
is kind of stunning and and just well, I, I but I guess it's beginning to go in one ear out the other ear that it's it's just not a natural thing because as fast as it starts it'll be gone and then it won't be happening anymore. All this attention will stop because it stops for everybody who gets in the center of attention. So it's not anything I can invest my time or energy on and get hung up on and, and be, a, you know, uh, make this my life. It's just something that's passing right by. But I know what you mean. There's a lot of attention being directed, especially at Billy. I go places with Billy and everybody's so focused on him, they hardly notice that I'm in the room. That happens all the time. So Billy's the star. And I'm just someone who is there along for the ride, enjoying it all. But if it wasn't for you, people wouldn't know about Billy. And, you know, I, I think people have so much respect for you and so much desire because of what you've given them. Well, that's a kind thought. I, I like the hope that I gave them something that is valuable and meaningful to them so that their lives will be better or in some ways fulfilled. That's beautiful words, Walter, because most people are hungry to be in the limelight. Most people want to do everything they can to have that five minutes of fame. And it's so nice to hear how humble you are and that you you just want to respect and be respected. And that's, that's all you can ask for. I, I appreciate very much your kind words of appreciation. But here's the bigger picture that goes on with me. Uh, my life is actually very focused on... You've heard that I practice transcendental meditation. I sit down two times a day, and it's a remarkable transformation of the way that their brain works, the way that their nerves work, the way that their cardiovascular behaves. What happens is it's huge healing and strengthening and integrating all across the nervous system, the brain, the heart, the whole, all the systems, because it turns out that you hear so many things called meditation, and all of them generally don't do too much, but transcendental meditation turns out to be completely special by itself and that it actually heals and nourishes and strengthens uh, and balances the physiology, the psychology, the emotions, uh, and makes them stronger and clearer and cleaner and uh, more resilient and, more, and the personality more mature. So it's a remarkable thing how much they found out that it heals the heart structure, the cardiovascular, how it increases IQ and creativity. All the things I've ever thought of or I've come out with came as a result, absolutely 100% with certainty, I can say they came as a result of sitting down two times a day and practicing transcendental meditation. Because when you sit there and do 2TM, it's the technique that just doesn't have you on the surface of your brain thinking thoughts. Scientists have proven that it actually takes you down to a deep, deep source inside the deeper areas of the mind where there's a source of energy and creativity and happiness too, but dynamic energy and creativity and intelligence that you can tap into. If you do this technique, tap into every day and start using and spending in your daily life. So I do this two times a day, and this is the completely the basis for why I had you know, a, a pretty high energy level to spend still at the age of 68 as I am now, and still a pretty reasonably clear creative process going at the age of 68, uh, because I do the transcendental meditation. And uh, I started getting interested in the video games because I was intrigued by just the, just the art of excellence and seeing who could be the best at video games and how high could their scores go and who would be the champions, and what would they be like? I was very intrigued at the very beginning by video game playing 
as being an expression of higher states of consciousness, possibly higher states of consciousness. I've learned since then that video games actually don't bring on higher states of consciousness, but they can be representative of whatever level of consciousness a person's at. And I believe that the people who get the higher scores actually have a little bit more of their brain operating properly, functioning properly, with the hemispheres of their brain coordinated a little bit more than the other people who have less high scores. So that was an intriguing thing to me, to try and see uh, how video games could play a role in the advancement of states of consciousness or the unfoldment of intelligence and more intelligence, more intelligence. And I found out that they do video game high scores and, 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 and uh, competence on video game playing does represent the level of consciousness of a person, but by playing the games, it doesn't increase the level of consciousness anymore, which was a disappointment, but it's understandable. However, by practicing transcendental meditation, I found that people do increase their level of consciousness. They talk about their brain only using, you know, a person using only 5% of their mental potential. They since decided that that, that concept's bogus, but they do all agree that it's a very small percentage of our potential that's actually being used in our daily life. And TM is uh, becoming a foremost technique for turning on that untapped potential. And in the world of video game playing, as a person would have practiced transcendental meditation more and more, theoretically, they would be better and better and better at everything they do, including video games. So that's one of the biggest things in my life, uh, pursuing pursuing uh, the process of expansion of consciousness through practice of transcendental meditation and seeing how that affects the course of my life and anybody else's life who practices it. So video games were actually just a little side thing that I did while all this stuff about expansion of consciousness was the true thing that I was most engaged in. And that's why I've stayed in Fairfield, Iowa for 37, 37, 38 years because there's a big university here that primarily teaches consciousness-based education where you can learn, uh, where you can actually have the practice of transcendental meditation as part of your curriculum. So that's a mouthful to hear, isn't it? It is, but it's it is fascinating, and it's it's amazing to see how you've you've done it, and you've you know you you've looked at the positives and the negatives, and the effects it has, and you've got a really good account of why you did it. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So, so the video games are only just a side, a little side path. Uh, for the video game players, I think it's more and more and more of their life because it's what they mainly engaged in and hung their whole sense of their whole sense of worth for a lot of these people they've hung their whole sense of worth on how good they are at video games or how important or how famous they are in the video game world and uh and that's uh, the path that they're following but I, I i know from experience that there are deeper pursuits they should be pursuing than just trying to get high scores on video games and those deeper pursuits would be to unfold their full mental potential, which video games don't do. Video games can be representative of what level they're at or how much development they currently have, but it does. They don't. But the practice of the video, game, video games doesn't necessarily move them to the next stage of moving more and more of their potential. When they say, "Oh, I got a higher score now. I got a higher score, so I'm advancing," well, they are advancing their score. But they're still using the. It's just like it's like a knife. When you start cutting something with a knife, cutting the vegetables does not sharpen the knife; it dulls the knife. 
So just playing the video games does not increase the level of consciousness. It just kind of like uses the level of consciousness they're at. You know, if they don't stay rested properly, or if they eat bad, or if they stay up real late, uh, it essentially affects the sharpness of the knife, which is the analogy for the, for the quality of the mind and the quality of the level of the consciousness. And so this is, so this is a very interesting, interesting thing, because uh, in the video game industry, the people who are most devoted, uh, i.e., the people who are intending to become professional esports stars, the lifestyle is very detrimental to their physical health, their emotional health, and their mental health. Because one thing scientists and medical experts realize now, that it's a very, very significant bit of importance for you to be sort of hooked up to the sun, hooked up to the day, and hooked up to the night properly. And when people topsy-turvy things and stay up all night, uh, on video games, playing against people on the other side of the world, it actually does something to the integrity of the brain and the nervous system and the, uh, and the, and the state of mind. So it actually is not a positive, healthy process. Staying up all night playing the video games and drinking the amount of sugar they drink and the amount of caffeine they drink and who knows what else they're doing. So that there is a thing that I just hope uh, can get balanced in the video game industry if competitive gaming wants to become a valuable, valuable and redeemable addition to the popular culture of our times. I hope you're enjoying this. I'm glad we're bringing this up because these are important things to address. No, no, definitely. And I, that's why I haven't stopped you. I didn't want to interrupt or give you any words. I just wanted to let you talk because it's very interesting and it's it's so, so important what you're saying. And I hope the message of anyone listening today takes that on board because it's very easy to veg out on the sofa, drink Red Bull all night, stay up till 4am and play a video game and waste away. I appreciate the fact that you're open-minded about uh, these these issues. Uh, I think some people would just be so busy about being locked down about video game this and video game that that um, they have blinders on. But you, know, you clearly don't have blinders on. So, so that's the thing. The world is a very stressful place. From the amount of toxins you inhale when you drive out in the traffic to the impurities of the water that comes out of the tap, you know, out of the water faucet, to the stuff that's been done to the food. Heaven help us about meat and milk. They have so many hormones or antibiotics or whatever in them. So it's a kind of a deadly world. And on top of that, uh, the stress by focusing that heavily on video game playing uh, and all night, for instance, and drinking the caffeine and the sugar, uh, will take its toll, and the people who are young doing this, they could possibly age faster and could have difficulties of some sort or other. So these are real concerns. Um, they got to start being like real athletes. Real athletes like Tom Brady, our star football player in America. You've heard of Tom Brady, of course. He's an absolute legend. Oh, yeah, absolute legend. I mean, I mean, people in, people in other sports have tremendous... Even, even people in other countries and other sports have reverence for him because, I mean, look, what he, look, look at the amount of grit he does. And he, he lives the most amazing lifestyle, the most amazing diet, and goes to bed like at 8.30 at night. So the prowess, the continued prowess, is by being hooked up to a healthy lifestyle. And right now, esports is not hooked up to a healthy lifestyle. 
So who knows what that's going to mean. So there it is. Like I said, it was a fascinating interview. It was so interesting. And one of those ones where you probably didn't hear much of me. You know, that guy talked for nearly 50 minutes. And originally we had over an hour and a half of footage because we were just talking and talking. And you probably don't know this, but that interview was done over about a month. There's some of that that was done at an airport, there was some done at a convention, and some done in the comfort of his own home. So hopefully with my editing skills you didn't notice too much difference, but it was great to hear from him. And just hearing his stories and how much time and kind of how much heart he puts into everything he does is brilliant and quite inspiring. You know, I listen to that and I think this guy's really genuine, he's really humble and he just is a good guy. And I've kept in contact with him since, you know, I'm friends with him now, we speak quite regularly, he's coming to the UK, and it's no big shock or surprise, I am going to be doing two extra episodes on this, and it doesn't take a genius to work out who I'm going to get, so have a think, you know, there's a couple of major people in this film that would hopefully feature on Mark and Me, and it's great to reveal that they will both be on specials coming out very, very soon. Oh, I'm so excited for those episodes. It's going to be good. In the meantime, I want to say thank you all. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Like I said, it's very different to the other guests I've had, but I hope that you all found it as fascinating as I did. If you haven't seen the documentary King of Kong, do what you can. Buy it. Go where you need to go. Download it. Whatever you have to do, go and see it because it's one of the best documentaries out there. Every time I've mentioned it on Skip to the End, I've seen people then send pictures in saying they've bought it or they've watched it and they bloody love it. So hopefully you guys can do the same. As I said earlier, I've got some big, big plans for this year ahead. I'm going to do as much as I can to give as much to you guys out there. I need you to, you know, show some support. So get on Facebook, get on Twitter, get on Instagram, give me a follow. Let me know if you're listening to the episodes because it's really, really important, your feedback. Without you guys, there's no point in me doing this. I want to finish today's episode by um, giving you a little taster of Walter Day's music. So instead of me putting some music that I think is, you know, got some sort of, you know, relevance to the episode, I'm just going to leave it into the capable hands of Walter. So this is Walter playing a nice little outro for you. And until next time, stay safe and thank you for listening to my podcast. Ba-dum, ba-da-dum. Ba-dum, ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum.